This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome to the show and thanks for listening. Policy has impact and sometimes unintended ones. Jerry and I have conversed with you about several proposed administrative changes that will negatively impact the people who are struggling with more month than money. You can find those shows on our website, foodfirstmichigan.org, and I felt for some time that much of our work is a reaction to circumstances that are beyond our control. It's hard for me to see how we can get ahead of this problem or any of the other social determinants that are negatively affecting our communities and especially our hungry neighbors without planning. I'm convinced that reacting is something that leaders have to do often, but isn't how we best solve problems, specifically big, intractable ones like hunger. It appears we are constantly playing catch-up, and unfortunately, reacting works great during a crisis, but at its core, reacting isn't leading. We need to plan, plan more, and plan better. We need to think how we can get ahead of this problem, and planning is the way. And without it, we will continue to play catch-up. To help us think better, today is Professor Leslie Huey, the Associate Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Michigan. Come back in a moment when Professor Huey, Jerry, and I talk about great plans for tackling food security across Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. It's Food First Michigan. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studio. And as promised, our guest, Professor Leslie Huey. And uh, you are the Associate Professor at Ur- of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Michigan. So welcome to Food First. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Thanks for driving down. We love to have our guest in the studio. And for this, you can tell already in the pre-show Oh, that was a production meeting, right? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So welcome. Thanks for being here. And tell us how you ended up at the University of Michigan working in sustainable food systems and and uh, bring us up to date. All right. So um, I studied urban and regional planning at Cornell, where I focused on food systems, both in my master's and my Ph.D., and in urban planning, food systems is not very common, so I was a little bit... Uh, isolated there mm-hmm. in terms of my work. There were a handful of people, including Kami Patakuchi, who's here at Wayne State, but hmm. um, it was it was a little bit of a risky move to focus sure. on food systems out of urban planning, but I grew up on farms and uh, have a really deep connection to food systems, and so that's why I ended up wanting to think about food systems through an urban planning lens and also from a policy perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got lucky when I was ready for the job market that uh, some hires opened up here at the University of Michigan focused on food systems, sustainable food systems. Uh, and one of them was in urban planning. So it was a perfect fit. And wow. that's how I ended up here in 2012. I moved here. 
You have a an extraordinary sense of timing then. So maybe we could go after the show and you could buy the lotto ticket. (laughs) (laughs) But that's pretty extraordinary. And I don't think I've really heard that combination before in urban and regional planning, concentrating on food systems. And it's quite inspiring to me, actually, Jerry. Oh, and I've worked with Kami here locally, and she's tremendous. And with Seed Wayne and some of the other things that she's done, um, she's certainly proven there's a lot of work to be done. Certainly, we all eat. So there's going to be some kind of food system, right? And how it works in urban settings is so different in so many ways. So nice to have this perspective, and I'm really eager to hear what you see as the opportunities and challenges in the work. Well, and I, I now I would say there is a lot more focus in, in urban planning on food systems. It's still a fairly niche area of uh-huh. focus, but... Those of us like Kami, who really was one of the first urban planning scholars to make bring this to the attention, actually to reintroduce food systems to urban planning. Mm-hmm. It's not as if urban planners historically didn't think about it. Um, if you look pat, back to when urban planning started as a field, um, some of our original plans thought much more regionally and thought about integrating agriculture and farms and food distribution and wholesale retail to make sure people were getting access to fresh food, often very local. Um, and it was part of the, the public health focus, too, of urban planning. But then over the years, as uh, the private sector got more involved and started making more, started going around publicly distributed wholesale, in uh, making direct connections to distributors and to farmers and got more efficient and bigger, then the public sector kind of moved out of uh, thinking about food systems uh, and food distribution mm-hmm. and food security as part of their responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I think because of so many crises that we have in our food system around not just food security, but environmental impacts of food systems, Um, the public health outcomes of our food system. I think that's one reason that urban planners have begun to think about maybe we should reintegrate food systems into the way we think about how cities and regions function as a basic right. You know, we always think about housing and transportation, um, utilities, land use, other things that shape our communities, and many of them which are fundamental rights, water, you know, how we get basic services, infrastructure, and food is one of those. And so it's something that those of us that are involved in urban planning think is really fundamental to reintegrating, at least have a lens that looks at food systems and the way that we do our work. Can I throw a few balls in the air? Yeah. We're going to find out what her juggling skills are now. So I am aware of at least seven or eight different issues around this issue of urban planning around food systems. I'm aware of people who want to farm chickens and goats in their backyard. I'm aware of people growing heirloom products so that they can sell them to restaurants and and actually use that as an income stream, as a way to, to... It's Think of it as entrepreneurism within the food system, right? I'm aware of commercial kitchens that are helping people take good recipes to scale. I'm aware of efforts where 
locally grown products are made more readily available in both big and small grocery settings. I mean, and those are just a few of the balls that I know are in the air. So when you think about specifically food systems and the work that you're doing, which are all those things? Are you looking at all those things or are you looking at things that are way different than that? Or, you know, I'm really curious to kind of get your take on which of these things. And those are just a few. Food justice is one of them, too. Okay, all right. That that's a lot of balls in the air right there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, a I'm gonna help you out, Leslie. And let's let's get get you to answer these balls in the air juggling scenarios that Jerry's just presented on the other side of the break. Let's take a just take just a minute to pay a few bills. He's Jerry Brisson. She is Professor Leslie Huey. She is our guest today. You're listening to Food First Michigan. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. We're back. Thanks for listening, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight, Jerry Brisson, and Professor Leslie Huey from the University of Michigan. And um, he threw a lot of balls in the air, so I don't know if you want to juggle them or hit them. (laughs) Whatever you want to do, Leslie, take off. Well, I think what you're raising is a question about what food systems is. And I think that's largely one lens that, at least in my work, that I'm trying to promote is to not just think about individual pieces of the food system. So some of the ideas that you threw out there around growing local food or having chickens in your backyard or incubator kitchens and the food entrepreneurs, those are all some pieces. Uh, But quite often, and I think this is why I think urban planners are really important in thinking about how to reshape our food systems is that quite often when there has been government-led work, especially local government-led work around some aspects of food systems, it's been in isolated ways. So the public health department might think about it in terms of public health outcomes. Maybe the parks department might think about open space. They might, uh, they might allow some community gardens, for instance, in a city. Um, maybe the economic development department might think about where to put new grocery stores. But very often there's a lot of gaps and, and there's not a linking up of how to think about how each of these pieces fits together. Mm. And so these departments are often not talking to one another. And quite often, and I've also done a lot of work on food systems in Bolivia, and and I've seen there and other countries where I've worked too that that a lot of issues often fall through the cracks because of these governance gaps. And so urban planners, I think, can be that bridge to think at a systems level and try to think about how everything connects. So for instance, quite often a lot of cities are not thinking, in cities that are growing, which is not the case in Detroit, for instance, and some of our other cities, but other cities that are growing have to think about the most productive farmland at the edges of the city. And too often urban planners aren't systematically thinking about how to preserve that farmland, how to support uh, succession planning of farms where there is no one to pass on a farm to. So land use and zoning becomes really important in that regard. Um, They're not often thinking systematically about where to place grocery stores or how to attract them, how to incentivize them. And many of the things you talked about are really bottom-up 
private sector or hmm. uh, grassroots efforts. And I think in the United States, compared to my work internationally, much of the effort that has been pushing the needle and trying to push for innovations has come from the grassroots, from nonprofits, from community groups, and often the private sector. And local government, state government often isn't being proactive. They're sometimes pushed to support certain innovations. But I'd like to see institutions and government to be much more proactive, much more systems-based in their thinking, and to talk across all these sectors so that certain issues, like food, like many of these hidden issues, like food insecurity, malnutrition internationally, often is the are the things that fall through the gaps because the, those that are often the most affected, the lowest income, often women and children mm-hmm. who don't have as strong a voice, uh, don't often get their issues on political agendas. So would you say, just to kind of you know, put that in, in language that I would think about from a food bank perspective, that sometimes the people that need access to that food um, and have no real way to speak to their lack of access, just flat out get ignored in the process because we're concerned more about the economic concerns or some of the other things that food systems certainly are important to. But if you look at it holistically, you can answer some of these deeper questions for people who maybe lack access at the same time as you're addressing the environment or the economic issue so that maybe you can actually find a way to pay for better access while you're getting this all done. Would that be a fair representation of an example of why it would be better to have it more integrated. Exactly. And I think quite often, too, for instance, if we don't have anyone in a local government like a planner that's trying to think more systemically, um, certain certain sexy ideas you know, that look really exciting like very high-tech ways of doing urban agriculture might get the attention because of the capital that's behind it, because of the political connections that people have behind it. And the Economic Development Department might grab on to, let's do, you know, hydroponics and a high-rise building and invest in that. Instead of, and then what happens is often a lot of the community-based groups, the multi-generational urban gardening and farming that's been going on gets overlooked because it's low resource and very few people have the time to kind of make that connection and to to make the political connections to push for support from the local government. So if you have a systems-based approach, you're also going to be thinking, I think, from a social justice perspective too, not just uh, about things that pop up that suddenly seem really exciting from a, from a, I guess, an economic development perspective on a, you know, well, I don't know how to phrase that perfectly, but I think a systems-based perspective also has a social justice perspective, essentially, is what I'm saying. You know, And you need someone to look for people who don't always have a voice, a very easy voice on the public stage. So maybe a way to say that in a, in a again, kind of food banking language, there are people that have been doing this work for a long time in a certain way, but they don't necessarily have access to the same resources as somebody else who might be a more polished entrepreneur. 
entrepreneur. Right. And so that polished entrepreneur might have a very good idea and it might make a lot of sense. But if you put all your eggs in that basket, you're really leaving an opportunity behind for people that have a lot to contribute to this. People who have knowledge about the challenges of urban farming, people who have knowledge of what people in the community might want to eat versus what they might not want to eat based on their experience of actually serving this community for a long period of time. And I I want to phrase it that way because in so many cases we think of social justice in a, well, we're going to help somebody who's disadvantaged. And And I want to turn that upside down because it's not necessarily... Um, about the capacity of this other person. It's really about the access they've had to resources. Exactly. So once you start broadening your perspective, you see our community as one worth investing in, not just one that has to be helped out. Exactly. And I think quite often when urban planning, you know, in, in my work with urban planning students, I'm not trying to turn them all into food systems planners. There's very few jobs out there that actually have food systems in the title for urban planning or for local government jobs, although there's some, which are really exciting. Um, but I want them just to have a lens, a food systems lens, mm-hmm. because another thing that I think that they often are overlooking and missing an opportunity is when they have equity planning, for instance, as their goal or economic development or environmental planning, um, they could leverage, like you said, the knowledge, the social networks, all of the work that's been going on on the ground already, this local food movement, this alternative food movement, food justice movements, they could leverage that for their end goals. Um, And they're often, if they don't have that food systems lens, they're not going to take advantage of those opportunities and build on that existing knowledge that's already out there. They're also potentially going to make some decisions that could inadvertently worsen a lot of food systems outcomes. I, I think that's a great point. What I'm really excited about, and this is like, you know, 30,000 foot view here, is the lens of food insecurity or food systems that you're talking about now has come back to urban and regional planners, uh, and they're integrating that lens into their thought process as they develop the system. And so that's something I think that has that was there and then went away, and now it's back. But I think you could probably say the same thing about education, same thing about health care, same thing about workforce retention, that this is a lens that, I mean, we say on the show a lot, if third grade reading level by third grade, if they're not well fed, they won't be well read, right? Well, that's a lens that needs that food security lens that needs to be in that entire systems planning when we're talking about helping people get the children help to get to third grade reading level by third grade. So I'm excited about this conversation simply because it's present. It's coming back. It's in your world, and we're trying to make it in everybody's world. That's why the name of the show is... Food First, Food First, <laughs> baby. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here, our guest, Professor Leslie Huey. She's from the University of Michigan. She's a, a regional professor of urban and regional planning, and uh, she's helping us think through a different lens today. And uh, you come back and be with us in just a moment. First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, Professor Leslie Huey. 
thank you for being with us. And um, you're helping us think better and different here. But there's a lot of synergy in the way we think and the values we have in the show and how you're investing your one handful of life into this this mission, this passion that you have to, I think, I'm going to use the term equity. You used it a little bit ago. And I see more of the social determinants of health being viewed through the lens of equity than ever before. And I think that's got to be a value that you guys, uh, that you personally and your profession is embracing. It is, absolutely. Uh, We have a whole area called equity planning. um, And I think it's the basis of how I think about my work. Mm -hmm. And so in food systems, too, a lot of it is is unearthing the historical, you know, the systems that have created our current inequities and then thinking about what strategies can we do to try to redress a lot of the inequities that we have, whether it's from a health perspective through food systems or access to resources, as we talked about, mm-hmm. for fa- small farmers, for entrepreneurs, um, and to, to kind of level the playing field and make use of a lot of the people that have left been left out of the conversation until now. I think it's, again, you know, always, always my my years of working in community always tells me when you invest in the community, it's an investment that has a high return. And so, you know, equity isn't just about winners and losers. It's about winners and winners. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, the most exciting thing about the whole movement. It's about how does the whole community benefit from when you prioritize making sure everyone can use their skills to their potential, right? Because fundamentally, we're talking about the potential from the whole community just doesn't belong to some. It belongs to us all. And the more all of our potential rises, the better we're all going to be, right? I mean, that's and that's pretty exciting. And I know you've just finished some work recently with Food Gathers, which is one of our awesome food banks in Michigan. And so I think it'd be good to hear a little bit about how did that project go? And, you know, what were some of your conclusions? Sure. So we started talking with uh, Food Gatherers. Actually, it was their idea. It was Markel Miller that I started working with at Food Gatherers, which is based in Washtenaw County. And there was concern, I think, with the Food Bank Council as well around the reinstatement of the work requirements for SNAP or what we've referred to in the past as food stamps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was coming down the road. And the, also the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services in Washtenaw County, I think at the state level, was also concerned. You know, And as you know, these were work requirements that were actually implemented initially with the Welfare Reform Act in 1996. And, and states had the right to um, ask for waivers when unemployment rates were high enough. Mm-hmm. And that ha- after the 2008 recession, for quite a while, Michigan had that exemption and so didn't have to require people to um, work a certain number of hours to be eligible. And these are able-bodied working adults. You know, these are individuals without dependents that don't have disabilities. So we were concerned about the impact. Food Gathers especially was concerned about the impact it was going to have on them, on food pantries that they serve, over 100 food pantries in Washtenaw County, and the number of people that were suddenly going to rush to them once these work requirements were put in place. Because what it means is uh, able-bodied working adults can only work, can only access SNAP uh, for three months out of a three-year period if they don't then begin to work 80 hours a month 
or volunteer or be in an approved training program. And um, so we studied as it was implemented initially in four counties, one of them in Washtenaw County. We started doing interviews right after the work requirements were put in place with a lot of food pantries. We did a survey um, with over 100 of the pantries that Food Gatherers serves. We did a lot of surveys, face-to-face surveys with individuals in a number of places broadly to understand food security and how food security affects people differently, uh, whether they have it or are food insecure. Mm. And also trying to find people who were losing their benefits because they weren't able to meet the work requirements to see what kind of impact that was having on them. Um, And one thing we did is similar to Feed America's survey is we asked individuals about their trade-offs. And Mm. it was very clear, even when people were able to maintain their SNAP benefits, that they faced remarkable trade-offs with paying for utilities, with health care, housing, transportation. Um, and and so it, it really illustrated this point I was making earlier, that if urban planners aren't aware of how food insecurity affects their communities, it's going to undermine their efforts to try to ensure that everybody has adequate a- access to housing, basic utilities, um, health planning and health care, you know, gets affected, transportation. Um, and then the other finding was that the nonprofits that are often helping people try to navigate the SNAP system and offering f- food assistance, emergency food assistance, uh, were many of them were overburdened, um, not to the degree that we expected, but it was still noticeable that, and it was especially noticeable in the nonprofits that offer what we call wraparound services. So not Mm -hmm. just a food pantry, but maybe assistance with getting transportation to try to find work, or uh, they might have a a place where you can find clothing or assistance with healthcare, for instance. Those are the ones getting the most increase in people coming to them. And we also found a lot of confusion around who was really eligible. So we think a lot of people might have felt fallen through the cracks. Um, And this is not for trying, you know, food gatherers and the Michigan Health Department, uh, Health Human Services Department did a remarkable effort to try to ensure that nonprofits knew what was going to happen and so that individuals did too. And um, But it largely showed that even with the best intentions to, to prepare for the changes, uh, these nonprofits were still really struggling, and many of them are really critical to getting people on SNAP, but they're not getting the support they need from the state to be able to do that, and many of them are financially struggling. And to have even more people rely on them when we keep making it very difficult for people to access basic services, basic needs like food, um, mm. it places the burden that I think local government should really make, government in general, the state, should make as their responsibility to ensure that people have basic access to basic needs like food. It places the burden on our nonprofits and stresses our communities even further. So I, I, I'm feeling your pain there because the, some of the administrative changes that we've talked about here on the show, broad-based categorical eligibility moving from the consumer price index to the chained consumer price index. And all of these are used to determine whether people are eligible for benefits or not, right? The changes that have been proposed um, in the administration, uh, I see that 
you know, not as a solution for poverty where they're rolling folks off of their roles and in fact just lengthening our lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Although I will say one one change that I'm excited about that at least the state of Michigan is implementing is um, this effort to try to cut down on the paperwork and the work right. case workload. I mean, some of these caseworkers have, I think, up to 800 cases that they have to yeah. manage. So I really have a lot of empathy for caseworkers. It's much more of a structural issue that they're having to face uh, from the federal level. But at least in Michigan, there's uh, a change, I think, that's coming down in December where assets can be higher yes. and people only can verbally verify their assets, yes. which cuts down on remarkable paperwork right. um, and basically allows then caseworkers to really focus on on what they should be focusing on, which is getting people, you know, giving giving them the basic needs that they need right away. And some of the criticism for that change, you know, that is that has come has focused around its is self declaration, right? And so um, I think the point that gets missed a lot in that concern is I don't really want to stand in a parking lot in the dead of winter for a mobile distribution. Absolutely. To get food to help my family. So, you know, I don't have a problem with the self-declaration part of this because I don't think anybody wants to be there any more or any longer than they absolutely have to be. Exactly. The dignity involved in in ensuring we have our basic needs is often really overlooked. And I think one bigger issue is a lot of times those of us in the middle or upper class don't recognize that so many of the privileges that we have are quite often supported by government, but it's much more hidden. We don't have to fill out a lot of paperwork. We don't have to stand in line to get right. our basic needs. Right. But it's underwrited quite often by government without us recognizing it. I also think that the way you treat somebody depends all too often on whose fault you think it is. You know, so if you see that this the what's really going on is that person's fault, and so I'm going to make dang sure they don't take advantage of me, right? Because it's not my fault, right? If you put that shoe on the other foot and you say, you know, how have I contributed to the way things are that that has you know created systems that that mean people have to do this, right? Yeah. And so how do I make this as easy for them as possible? If I think that I'm at least somewhat to blame, I'm going to treat someone differently. Right. right. I'm going to say I'm sorry. Right. I'm not going to say, dang it, what are you doing? And I, I do think that that shift in perspective is important as we think about the people that we're serving. I can tell you this. Most people would be very, very happy to have a job that pays enough and enough time in the day to and, and not have any trade-offs and have all the choices to pay all their bills the way most of us do. Almost everyone would rather have that. So, you know, casting blame is a dangerous thing, and one of the side effects is not treating people right. Right. Professor Leslie Huey from the University of Michigan, um, urban and regional planning professor, uh, keep thinking, keep planning. We need you. We need you in this work, and um, and you're multiplying yourself with your students. So um, we're going to say thank you for how you're investing your one handful of life. Well, thank you as well for having me. This was a great conversation with you, and thank you again for your work too. It's really vital. Well, we'll stay at it together. Jerry and I will be back in just a moment.
Welcome back, everyone. Jerry, that was Associate Professor Leslie Huey from the University of Michigan. And I can tell you that um, I'm excited that the lens of food insecurity has come back to urban and regional planning, as she talked about. And I think that's really one of the purposes we have in our show is in to fact, make, I'm taking credit. Is everybody I'm just saying, you know, Food First Michigan is making a difference. You could hear it right here today. Well, it, we want everybody to have to to look view their work through that lens of food security. Yeah, it's so important, and um, it touches on so many of the things we have talked about. But one of the most important things that has to happen if we're going to fix these problems is to keep bringing smart people to the table who can add just another layer. So these layers add one on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next, until all of a sudden you're significantly higher and farther than you were before in terms of your thinking. And then you can start to solve these problems. And I'm, I mean, they are smart. They are researching this. They are adding a much deeper and broader knowledge base to our understanding of what does it mean to really plan a good food system. And that has to take into account food insecurity and that challenge that people have. If you don't take that into account, then you're not really going to solve problems. Well, you know, in a few weeks, Jerry, we're going to have the uh, president, uh, CEO of the Michigan uh, Education Association, Paula Harbart. And um, she's a part of this group called uh, Launch Michigan, which is about creating... um, uh, a sustainable education plan that would that would any administration, Republican or Democrat or independent or whatever, could attach themselves to. So thereby giving some consistency. And one of the things that I think that I want reason I wanted to have her on the show is the same reason that we just had Leslie on the show is we want to make sure that they have the food insecurity lens when they're creating this plan. And to understand what happens at a household when you don't address food insecurity. I mean, as we've said before, but it's worth repeating, food is not a terribly expensive problem to solve. There's a lot of it. We know how to get it from here to there, and and we know there's more available. So it's something we actually have the answer for. We don't have to do another research project (laughs) to have the answer. We have the answer, right? So all we have to do is implement the answer based on a more complete understanding of the value of the work. And we have known since the 1940s that children need to be well-nourished in order to learn at their capacity. We have also known for way too many years there are too many kids coming out of our education system who haven't learned everything they need to know. So Mm. bottom line is putting those two things together shouldn't be that hard of a leap, and I am eager to have a conversation with someone that can make a difference in that space. Well, and I think a shout-out to the University of Michigan Michigan here is due as well, because what um, Professor Huey told us is that she was a part of a group hire that was with emphasis on a sustainable food system. And so I think it's pretty cool that one of our universities understands the value of food security and a food system that they would invest in creating this this, this, uh, synergy toward hiring multiple people Um, in order to lead this work through their institution. It also suggests 
it's a complex problem. It intersects with a lot of different systems. So you hire different people with different specialties to bring that complexity to a better light so you can understand when you bring it all together, this is the best way to solve it in, in spite of the fact that it is a difficult problem. You know, and I think as many researchers as we work with, and I, I do really appreciate their work, I think the thing that they get frustrated about is if they see how this could happen and should happen and could be connected and interconnected, but they themselves as a researcher really don't have anything tangible in order to, to bring. And so that's, that what I'm talking about, tangible, is food. Right. And we had about 205 million pounds of it that we distributed across Michigan last year. That's exactly right. And uh, and there's so many other good things this touched on. We didn't talk a lot about the self-sufficiency standard. We, nope. That's something we got to talk about on another show. It's probably time to bring that back around. It's it's being redone now right? because we redo it uh, periodically so that we have good years. data. And uh, so we're going to be able to say more about that. But all, uh, all good information to understand this whole food system and the way we need to address it in order to get the best results for our community. Well, I think it's the three questions you ask. Who needs help? How much help do they need? And for how long? And I think the self-sufficiency, which you can find at our website, fbcmish.org slash self-sufficiency standard, tells you how much people need in order to not need us or the government. So I guess it's time for a little food for thought. You've heard it. Fail to plan. Plan to fail. There will always be an element of surprise and opportunity in our work, both in need and opportunity. But there is no substitution for planning. It was the infamous Mike Tyson who once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And regardless of being punched in the mouth or dealing with any other eventuality, preparation is the key to overcoming. How do you prepare for what you don't know? Well, General George Patton said, Prepare for the unknown by studying how others in the past have coped with the unforeseeable and the unpredictable. So thanks for listening. We are honored that you do so. Our shows are located at Food First Michigan, foodfirstmi.org, and are arranged by category for your convenience. Until next week, let's continue to remember, it's Food First, folks. Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.